You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. I'm William Ivy Long, and this is The Fabulous Invalid. You want to do it one more time? Yeah. So we have a little more energy? Yeah, okay. a little more energy. From the um, top? Yeah. A five, six, seven, eight. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, a Broadway-centric podcast where we take a 360-degree view of the theater through interviews with actors, writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. I'm Jamie Dumont, recovering Broadway marketer, personal chef, and event planner. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with Stage Left on NYC. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. You have such energy tonight. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I'm excited to talk to our guest. I'm excited to talk to our guest, too, but we should also mention we're back at Orso. Yes, our favorite restaurant in the theater district. We are at our favorite restaurant. In at the our theater. usual table. At our usual table <laughs> in the corner. You know, my parents went to see um, Ain't Too Proud over the summer and uh, made a reservation at Orso, unbeknownst to me, and got here, and apparently my dad, never the name dropper, mentioned that um, you know that I'm with this podcast and that we record here. And the manager was like, oh, of course, I'll give you their table. So they sat at this table with their friends, Joan and Charlie, who they'd known forever, uh, and had dinner, loved it, of course, because this is such a great restaurant, and then saw Ain't Too Proud, which, as we all know, is one hell of a musical. That it is. And I, you know I love a good name dropper. I mean, oh, well, I, you've, I, you, you really need to meet my dad then. You know, he's, I, he's great. I actually do need to meet your parents. It's getting a little crazy. <laughs> I, know, I, right? I don't know if they actually exist. Well, I know they do. They exist. They I exist. do. I'm not an orphan. Your, yeah. your mother is very prolific on our social media. That's I right. Love, that's right. I love that about her. She's a big her. fan. Um, I actually thanked her for birthing you on social media. Oh, how about I, that? I got a laugh emoji yeah. out of her, which, which <laughs> made and me you feel got good. one out of me just now. Yeah. Well, you know, I have my moments. Anyway, it's good to be back at our table. I feel at home. You are clutching the table in this corner. As if it's going to run yeah, well, away. I, you can't see this, listeners, but I have the corner seat. So yeah, you always do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good one. Um, and we have a great guest today, William Ivy Long, legend, legend, true legend. Let's get to it. Let's. With no less than 75 Broadway shows to his credit, and work that extends to off-Broadway, regional theater, television, and film, William Ivy Long's name has been synonymous with the theater for over four decades. Currently represented on Broadway with last season's Tootsie and Beetlejuice and the long-running hit Chicago, we are pleased to be joined by six-time Tony Award winner, former chairman of the American Theater Wing, and Theater Hall of Fame inductee, costume designer William Ivy Long. Wow. Welcome. That sounds impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Now, do you have Tito's vodka? Yes, we do. Ah, well, then that's all we want. <laughs> Very well. I would love a Tito's straight up with two big wedges of lemon and a big glass of ice cubes. I just mix my own oh, mercurial. <laughs> I would like uh, iced tea, please. Yes. Oh, I'll also do an iced tea. That Great. sounds fun. Yeah, thank you. And I love that you. That not only can you design costumes, but you can also bartend. Right. Well, you know, I had two bars on Second Avenue for ten years. You did? Shulbreds and Ninth Ward. I didn't know Which that. I designed and owned and. I'll even tell you about them, should you ask me. How is that not on the Google when you look you up? See? Shulbred was my grandmother's name. Shulbred. My great-grandmother. Well, my great-grandfather's name, I guess. Yes. And uh, Scottish Bar. It was on 2nd Avenue and 12th Street. What year was this? And, uh, what, what, what time in New York are you talking about? It, was, it ran until two years ago. And so 10 years before that. So what would that be? Oh six, yeah. Oh six, so yeah. eight, oh nine, somewhere yeah, there. Yeah, oh six, it opened, and oh eight, uh, Ninth Ward opened, wow. and that was right across the street, and that was uh, Bourbon, obviously, because it was from New Orleans, <laughs> and I designed both of them and filled them with family pictures and oh my gosh, engravings and, and lithographs from my next door neighbor, who was Louise Bourgeois. Oh wow! Uh, for sixteen years, I was next to her, and. Um, yeah, and we did rather well. We ran for 10 years. Yeah, that's a long run. <laughs> and then, Longer uh, than most shows. Shall yeah. we just say, then um, strange, strange and wonderful things started turning up about the finances that I had no idea about. <laughs> so we just decided not to. Well, we weren't allowed to continue. <laughs> we opened uh, Ninth Ward, uh, which was bourbon and all things New Orleans. <laughs> and it had a back garden, and it Ooh. also ran for 
10 years. So, I love that uh, you say ran for 10 yes, years. It like ran it's a for show. 10 years yes, like a yeah. show. <laughs> well, they are a show. You know, they live are. theater is, is bartending and, and, and bar going. Absolutely. And uh, it's very much, it brings out the uh, storytelling in one. Oh, yes. And in fact, especially if you have no sports TVs, mm. it encourages storytelling right. and uh, all manner <laughs> of uh, communication. Not having TV in many parts of your life is not a bad thing. I think it's superb. Yeah. Not that I haven't been proud of my live television performances and, and uh, that I've worked on. I have a question. Where are you drawing inspiration from right now? Oh, my goodness. You know, I, um, I, 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 that's a very good one. Inspiration from, well, I always do, this is what I do. It's sort of, to answer your question, I'm just going to blurt it out whether it makes any sense at all. But I have a smartphone number four. And every morning before I force myself to go to the gym and force myself to try to be a healthy human being, um... I indulge in my Instagram and my um, Google. What's the Safari? That's my favorite thing. You press the Safari. Browser. That one, right? And my Woman's Wear Daily. Hmm. And Daily Variety. But my Woman's Wear Daily brings me a great deal of joy. And especially during the collections. And I love seeing what the other part of the world is coming up with. Because people say, how is fashion different from costume design? Well, it's very clear. Costume design, we recreate a period as chosen by the director, time, place, weather conditions, age of performers, and we, we recreate it. We interpret it. If there's a concept, it goes through a blender. But we're basically telling a story from an exact period in time or a created imaginary time. Fashion designers, God love them, imagine the way they would like the world to look. And by that, they'd like to imagine a world that they would love to live in and what it, w- it should look like. So these are completely different, different uh, whole points of view to clothing the body. So of course I'm so envious of the other side <laughs> that every morning I uh, see what's happening. Of course we're in between shows right this second. But, um, oh my goodness, the Paris, the London, the New York, the Milan. Oh, wow. And I follow them. And then, since I'm a Luddite and only can, I have no computer, but my computer number four, the little one that's just recently broken, (laughs) um, I mark down which shows I want to see. And I write, I email my, uh, one of my assistants and say, would you please print out Tom Brown's latest show from Paris? Or Tom, or or Dolce Gabbana from, you know, Rome, or the steps of, you know, St. Ignatius Leola. Print out the actual photographs of the I want to see every single garment, because I'm only seeing three. So, skip to, how did this help my life and change it? Last year, or about two years ago, how long have I been working on Tootsie and Beetlejuice? (laughs) Years and years and years, but let's just say two years ago when I was in the thick of Beetlejuice, and we were trying to get inside the brain of uh, Tim Burton, Mm. because you don't want, no one wants you to put a movie on the stage. Even if you wanted to, I don't think you could, because it's different. We can't make people look that good. (laughs) They've got take (laughs) after take. That sweat drooling down the mascara. (laughs) We can't wipe ours away. It's just going to be there. So... I'm always trying to find inside the auteur if you're taking a film from film to stage, and I have been involved with many of these transfers. Um, You don't want to copy it. You want to homage it. Of course, I always say homage is French for stealing, but you try to (laughs) homage it because that's why people want to come see it. So it's a double-edged sword. You know, yes, it's like it. No, it's not a copy. So how do you make it not a copy? I go back to the source material or to the brain. Mm. And the brain of Tim Burton is a a delight to see. We all went to MoMA a few years ago when they had his one-man show, and I bought all the cocktail napkins and all the books and all the, you know, tchotchkes. And I brought those out again. I had them Xerox and surrounded myself in my studio so that by osmosis, I would get this vibration of his very own hands drawing. There are very few interpretive auteur artists of the, of the film who actually can draw 
exactly what they want to say. Now, he has a great assist with Colleen Atwood, the wonderful costume designer who interprets most of his recent recent work. And she and he are very, uh, have great simpatico-ness. But I wanted to figure my own simpatico-ness. So I started trying to draw like him. He draws with a, it's like a ballpoint pen or, and markers. Two objects I've never used. So automatically my trying switches because I draw with ink, pen and ink, and very uh, soft pencil. So that's totally different from pen and ink and markers. And then I watercolor or gouache or light uh, oil, oil washes. So automatically I'm changing by my medium, my natural medium being different. So I do my, my work. I sometimes even assign myself, okay, copy the Mona Lisa according to Tim Burton. Well, there it is and I'm trying. Of course I can't do it and that's the point. My version is going to be different. But starting with the master, right in front of you mm. is a very compelling thing to do. So you're literally soaking up so that who is they are. I'm, yes, I'm soaking up what's behind, as far as, as I'm able, what is behind that brain? Mm. What's up there? What, what is he doing? And so that's how I find my inspiration in that show. And maybe that sort of implies how I do it with everything. With your other show from last season, Tootsie, which is not a, it's not a fantasy world. It's not a period piece. It takes place in contemporary. It Absolutely. takes place today. So how how did how does that differ? How did you get into that show? Because that feels like you're actually creating fashions, which is the opposite of what exactly. you think you or what you said you did. <laughs> and in fact, I may have stumbled upon that behavior <laughs> because it's cutting edge today. Well, think about what Tootsie's story is now. No spoiler alert, we don't do a soap opera. We join the very long line of backstage musicals, right. the making of a musical on the Broadway. <laughs> and so we join Chorus Line, 42nd Street. Think about it. And this is exciting in itself. So it's sort of, I'm slightly familiar with this process. So there are two minds I have to get into inside of. Not Tim Burton's. I have to get inside the mind of the director of our play within the play, played by Reg Rogers in, in, a, in a heart-stoppingly, breathtakingly, breathless <laughs> performance, and trying to get into his brain. So how do I do that? Well, I'm trying to get into the brain, the brain of the, of the character, character, not of the, Reg Rogers is right. The character the, right, of the director. character of the director. So Ron Carlyle. Ron Carlyle. <laughs> well done, Ron. Very good. This is a Ron Carlyle Ron Carlyle production. That's, that's right. So I try that, and I bring... By the way, also for Tootsie, I surround my studio. Oh, and I have these boards that I go and buy at the hardware store. They're either pink or blue, depending upon the density of the insulation you want for your new home. <laughs> if they're pink, they're one density. If they're blue, they're... So I get the blue. It's thicker. And I paint them white on both sides. So at one time, I can have 24 whole boards for Tootsie and 20, then turn them over in 24 for uh, Beetlejuice. Mm. And I was doing four shows at once uh, last year at one time. So I also had Princess Diana on another set of boards. And I had uh, Marie the Musical, used to be called Little Dancer by Degas sculpting the, the little ballet rap. So at any one moment, it's a very schizophrenic feeling because you can turn around and sometimes when it's half done, you go, oh, well, ah, oh, look, there's Monet, Manet, and Degas <laughs> over here, and here's Tim Burton. And it's very exciting when those disjuncts sort of blare against right. each other across the room. Do you ever find that they can inform each yes, other? Yes, they talk to each other. Yeah. Color-wise, they do. Mm. Color-wise, they do. Tim Burton only uses a few colors. So... When you, and one of the things I did, I would take Xeroxes that we then cut the, I'm such a Virgo, uh, you cut the little <laughs> white edges off the Xerox because I can't stand someone else get putting a f limit on that image. Right, yeah. You know, which is what white borders do. Mm -hmm. They're limitless, so I don't want to see those white borders. So we cut them off. And I try to collect as many of the, I say Monet Manet, uh, Degas, Renoir, Friends, mm -hmm. 
uh, at those periods, and I pull the ones in the same colors and put them up against uh, Tim Burton. It's, <laughs> it's a surprise. It's a real surprise to see how different colors are used mm-hmm. uh, on the human figure and which colors Tim Burton uses and doesn't, which ones he doesn't use. So anyway, that w- that's sort of like a late night juxtaposition that I do just for myself. I don't think I leave it there for the morning for everybody to see it afterwards. <laughs> but I'm back to um, Tootsie. Tootsie, and I'm back to Ron Carlyle. So w- I look up, I have my staff and I, we, we look up and then they print it out. And I have a lot of books that book. They're books. You know, you turn the pages. I love books because you never know what is so... It's free associating. You can just keep looking, whereas in the computer, it will only spit out what you type in. Right. So this way, I love seeing what's... So we do sort of cheesy productions. I won't tell you which ones because sometimes <laughs> I work on revivals of some of these. So I'm not going to tell you which ones from the... You know, that we have... Um, because Ron Carlisle is just, shall we say, slightly cheesy... <laughs> And uh, inappropriate. So there's some of these. And it's a, it's, uh, the play within a play is Romeo and Juliet called Juliet's Curse. And again, spoiler alert, I'm sorry I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Juliet wakes up, she's not dead, and she falls for Romeo's brother. <laughs> so that tells you it's already a different quirk. Right. So looking up, what would that production be. Okay, that's one whole thing you look up. Mm. And then, the really hard part is when you get inside the brain of Michael Dorsey, who is the actor who becomes Dorothy Michaels, you get inside his brain and try to figure out how would he dress himself when he is playing the role, (laughs) in his mind, the ultimate method acting. How would he dress himself to be convincingly perceived as Dorothy Michaels. There are mind, minefields all over this entire production. In fact, because when I he's first, a straight guy, he is a so st- he's coming to it with that point of view. He is. Having dated many women, <laughs> many girlfriends, many women his whole life, having struck out with every one of them, as with all of his auditions, he's just a mess. Right. We know many people like this. Sure. And they're not hard to find. <laughs> In fact, the mirror, some morning, shows me one. And so, uh, trying to be sensitive about, as I said, these minefields of inappropriateness and behavior, because what he's doing, as many of the lines say early on, he's stealing a, a job from a woman. Right. In fact, his next-door neighbor, Sandy, right. who auditions <laughs> for the same job. Yeah. So once you... Realize you're not going to get past these minefields. They're just mm. going to be there every single minute of the day. What I tried to do is, and I did this on Santino. I went shopping and bought a lot of sort of inexpensive clothes-type things that people can wear who have his measurements. Mm-hmm. He came and stood in, in my studio. I have two floors of a button factory in Tribeca. And on the street-level floor, um, I have a... Back in the back, I have a mirror from one of my restaurants. One oh, of my you're restaurants. Yes, exactly. With stage lights on it. So it's very blinding, but that's what you're going to see. And uh, we tried on different looks. What necklines, what sleeve lines, what waistlines. We padded out. Obviously went to the uh, corsetry store <laughs> and bought all manner of uh, things, shape-shifting. Right. And uh, tried all sorts of things way before I showed anything to the director, the brilliant Scott Ellis. And because I, Santino and I, I asked permission of Scott. I've done almost 25 shows with Scott Ellis. And uh, he granted it. And I said, can we just mess around and then show you things? I said, and then I told Santino, we're not going to show anything that you, Santino, don't like. So we got like three pictures out of the first. And then we, we all looked at it and showed it to Scott. And then he said, oh, well, this looks this, this looks that. And onward for about five of these fittings. Nothing made, mind you. Still just, but a lot of things I would like drape on him and pull and hold. Right. Behind the, <laughs> See what you know, looks roughly and yeah, what looks Yeah, yeah, and how around the neck. And, and, the, yeah. and so I discovered along the way many helpful things. I have to do a side comment about the Adam's apple. 
We all have an, we at this table have Adam's apples. Is Fantino's pronounced? Unpronounced. Oh, you're kidding. No. How lucky is that? <laughs> yeah, you couldn't get luckier. Because I'm guessing, and I have not done a study, because I did not go back and watch Tootsie the film. I remembered how hysterical it was from the beginning, and there are enough still pictures. I try not to look at the source material because then that's all you're going to do. Right. right. You can't get it out of your head. Right. And you can't get a, it. It's such a cultural, fabulous icon right. of, you know, comedy and and uh, just wrongness that <laughs> we all love it so much. But Dustin Hoffman's character as Dorothy Michaels wore very high collars and ruffles. And scarves. And scarves yeah. all around the neck. Well, on the Broadway and on uh, in opera and anything from a distance, the more skin you can show under the face, the better. And if you can't sew skin, you need to show white Why collars. Why is that? You need to pull the face down. So you make so there's more um, for the eye to find the face and mm. to see the features. You need simple around it, and you need skin if you can, a low as low a neckline as you can get. It just helps you go e- your eye ease into the face to discover all the nuances. Yeah. As when an audience member. As an audience right. member. If you're just like this, and I'm holding my hands right under my chin. You only have chin to, to hairline to work with. Right. You don't have all of this, and you don't really have the ears and the neck. Right. So this was a huge discovery. Mm. So we started playing with how much can we open up his neck. This gave us so much more opportunity than they ever had before. And for my needs on stage in order to find that face mm-hmm. so you can study its malleable nuances which you really need as much, as I said, as much of that skin around the face for you to see. You need to see ears, you need to see all this. And uh, it was very helpful. That was huge. So we started playing with necklines. I would imagine that this also helped Santino inform how he was going to start to play her. And 100%. And- oh, everything I've just said goes hand in hand with Santino and his process. I'm going to jump to, we then sat around, he and I, thinking of, who are the designers that designed this? So I started pulling, you know, from pulling them out on memo and then trying them on. Like right. this. Who are the designers that Dorothy would wear? That or Dorothy, the, that would Michael wear. would buy for Dorothy. Correct. That Michael right. would buy for Dorothy. Now we're not talking name brand, couture, super couture, right. but they're knockoffs in this fast, fast uh, right. fashion uh, world. You can find them very quickly translated down. So he and I, I found it first, shared it with him, and I said, I think we're onto something. He said, I think we are. So I went further. Remember, this is, nothing was just applied. It's all worth it. I was watching. Now, this is how long ago we were working on this for six months already. I was watching Prince Harry's wedding to Meghan Markle, <laughs> and I saw the dress she wore when she got out of the car for her rehearsal dinner. Mm. I don't know whether you remember it. It had asymmetrical neckline, a very tight-fitted waist, slightly high, and an asymmetrical handkerchief hemline. It was so flattering. Of course, anything she wears is flattering. But I thought, this will translate because I've got to straight across hemlines look dowdy on him. Right. Oh, that's interesting. And the dowdy is not where he... where. Michael Dorsey wanted Dorothy Michaels to go. So we started with Meghan Markle, and I have riffed on that one dress, not other dresses, just the one, and I have riffed on it throughout the entire evening. I want to travel back in time to Nine and Anita Morris and that wonderful dress, or body stocking is probably more... Cat suit. Speaking of skin, people called it a cat suit. Which was... Scandalous in its day. It was day. scandalous. And now, and how did you know that? Did you did you stay up late to see the Tonys when you were three? I, su- I <laughs> certainly did. I was a little old, I was a little older than three, but that's sweet of you to say. So, talk to us a little about that. It was a huge sensation. That that was, outfit, all of those outfits. It was unbelievable. I I I kneel. I, I I don't know what to say. I'm in I'm in such debt to Anita, and to Tommy Toon, and uh, to Maury Yeston. And uh, to everyone who, who sort of was involved with that, Tommy Walsh, who actually got me the job, 
it isn't until our first fitting I found out that Miss Anita Morris is born and raised in Durham, North Carolina, 10 miles from William Ivy Long, born and raised in Raleigh, North Carolina. Who knew any of this was happening? <laughs> Kindred we spirits. Didn't, we didn't know that at all until we were open. But anyway, it all started with uh, the desire for, of Fellini's film was in black and white. So the idea was to make the costumes all in black. The set by Lawrence Miller was going to be in white. And every bit of it was black and white and skin tone, except for Anita's hair. She had flame red hair. So the dress parade, because we had one. Oh, the process was just crazy. Night, oh, Sam's, or, or was it Charlie's? Which came first? It was torn down. It's right next to, it's on that corner right over there. Yeah. Anyway, 45th Street, 44th, oh, 45th Sam's. Street. Sam's. That's it. Yeah, yeah, the bar. That's right. And I drew all of the sketches on my napkins. And uh, my assistant, Neil Spizak, just kept handing them to me. Now, keep going, keep going. <laughs> oh, I want another. And uh, I would, until I drew the entire thing, after avoiding it forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And um, so we started. Then I had to turn them into big sketches, because I had to show them to Tommy, too. And I'm not going to show napkins to Tommy, right. too. You know, <laughs> really. And so, but that, that broke the first curse, and then showed them to Tommy. And then, sort of, I mean, I'm not ready for the rest of history, but I don't have another two hours. But suffice it to say, well, I will talk specifically about Anita. So Anita, double-jointed, brilliant, genius, uh, with Grover Dale, her husband, also a, a, such a talent, they created, with Tommy's leadership, her number on one of those boxes. And Anita pictured herself wearing a long sleeve turtleneck, up to here, to your chin, down to here, ruffle here, turtleneck, and long trousers in black. Mm -hmm. That's how she saw herself. Well, I did a sketch sort of of a Vargas girl with a deep cut low here and sort of this and this, and we made it, it was a disaster, absolute disaster, it was horrible. And I remember she told Tommy, because she had no rapport with me at that time, especially since it was so terrible. She said, oh, I can't wear this. I want to wear my turtleneck and my pants that I've been rehearsing in and that you like. <laughs> and, and so I had to go to Tommy, and Tommy announced to me that that's what she'd be wearing. And I said, could I please have one more try? One more try. He said, yes, but you know... She was very disappointed with that, that costume. I said, I know, I know, so am I. So we made a bodysuit that went down to the knuckles and went up to the chin, and it was net. We didn't have stretch net back then. It was just black net, and, and then we made pants, and we met, went down to the ankles. So we made a turtleneck and trousers. And then I found that I started cutting out little pieces of lace and putting on it because I still wanted a see-through lace. She came in, oh boy, was it ugly. It was just horrible and not right. And she was, of course, very despondent. I was like, I realized my life was over because I had no brilliant solution for this brilliant performance. Thinking they were going to fire you at any moment. I would be gone, 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 gone. And then I had a light bulb, that one of those light bulb moments, and I went into the workroom and I had a fabric that I was using on one of the Venetian capes as an overlay. It was black lace and it had Renaissance swirls flocking on it. It was flocked on it. It didn't stretch at all. It was the stiffest thing you've ever seen. I brought it in and wrapped it around her. She started smiling and we figured out a way to make this non-stretch into a top with an open keyhole back for people who know what a keyhole in the back is. Under the belt, we had a two inch stretch so that there was a big wide velvet belt that would stretch. And the rest we just cut the way you do, high in the crotch so that, and she was double jointed. So of course, no pressure. This non-stretch net, stiff, prickly net, but she didn't care, stiff and prickly. It was what you saw, that was the fabric. Pronto. Signor Contini, telephone. Go ahead. Quiet down. 
was lazing around my bedroom when an idea occurred to me I thought you might be wondering about idea it didn't stretch i just assumed all of these years that and so that all that stretching that it appeared was was, her body basically her her movement we cut seams under the where you would cut under the bosom darted right under there like you do and the rest and high gussets so this so she could move her arms and do all of this i can't even do what she (laughs) you're putting your arm (laughs) over your head my elbow on the top of my head fairly successfully all of that cut in that gusset cut in and then the keyhole was the key. The well, key explain what a keyhole is. Yeah. Pretend we don't know what that the is. The keyhole. Well, here's the. There's her back. The, the, there's the shoulders, vertebra, waist, bottom, legs. See. And so, the, remember that was the one stretch right there. That's the waist. The, the waist. keyhole went there, and that's the back. I see. See. So. So the entire back could open up. And then come back once she, but when she had to stretch her arms right. around or do things, it would that open up. That gives you the mobility. Give her the movement. Right. But of course, well, you may add, children, we're going to adult point two here. She decided not to wear a bra. Right. Because you would see it right. underneath, and especially since opens. the keyhole in right. the back opening. Well, wait, did you design it with the idea that she'd wear a bra? Or did you no, not think well, that through? Well, I built in... The bra support, the underwire, as it were, support. I built that in, but only with a seam. Right. And it but ended up only being a seam. I guess what I'm asking is, when you were, as you were designing the dress, did you intend that her bosoms would be visible? I didn't know where she would go, go with, with it. it. So you were leaving it up to her. I was, because remember, ladies' choice. Always the bra is ladies' choice. I'm never in the bra fittings. My lady assistants are in there with the ladies. Right. So we make sure we have a range, and what I have never argued with a bra choice. Wow. Whatever they come up with, we work with. Mm. Color, either black or nude, or what color nude, or white, or, you know, this. I go, I say ladies' choice, and I've never in my life argued. So because didn't... that is a very important choice, and I'm not part of it. <laughs> oh, that's it, it. That's very smart. Um, so you didn't actually set out to design a scandalous outfit. It happened, really. I designed to make a ladylike performing outfit because she was very ladylike. She's from Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. And her father's Doctor Doctor Morris, who delivered several of my friends. <laughs> so. You know, this is, no, we did not do a scandalous because her performance was very, it was not salacious. No, it was all about restraint. It was about restraint. Absolutely. And it was a meeting of the minds and the luck of this fabric. Kiss your feet but little brow Pinch your cheeks till you say ow And I can hardly wait to show you Have 
I always say smiles after a fitting. Mm. There have to be smiles after a fitting. And you stay in that fitting until you get smiles. And sometimes you only get one thing done in a, in a four-hour fitting. Right. And sometimes you get all of them done. Oh. You never know. Because if you don't have a smile, you haven't done your job. You haven't done your job, and you're not doing it. I keep a small yellow legal pad, one of those small ones, like this size. What is that? Five by seven. I keep that by my bed with a pen and our pencil. And literally, I wake up in the middle of the night. And, uh, well, now that I'm older, I wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> Sorry. But we, even when I was younger, I would wake up in the middle of the night uh, for no reason. And I would draw things. The most consistently vibrant waking up in the, was on the original Chicago. Anne Ron King and all her changes as Roxy. I couldn't get them right. I couldn't figure them out. And they would come to me in the middle of the night. And she loved changes. She has like six or eight changes in um, Chicago, whereas BB as Velma, two. Right. <laughs> Out of prison, in prison. That's it. <laughs> That's it. But in prison, you know, Roxy's just going to flirtatiously change oh, all yeah. the time. So we have lots of clothes for her. Yeah. But getting them right, and you know, Anne's extension, her legs can hit her nose standing still. Right. And, you know, those are the longest legs in captivity. I mean, That's there true. are no longer legs in Anne Ronkings. So you make a dress that doesn't frighten the children and the chickens, right? How do you do that? Well, you wake up in the middle of the night and you have ideas. Mm. Speaking of Chicago, a show that's been running for 23 years. All black costumes are again. You, are you constantly in fittings? Because the, you know, the, the cast changes so frequently. I do fittings, uh, mostly on the principals right, these days, right. when they bring in this, the, the revolving door of superstars. Right, right, it, when Barry Weisler surprises you with another improbable superstar right. who nails it. And uh, I'm always there. Now, now we, have, we have a series of the classic looks. Mm -hmm. uh, almost all of them stay within a range. Even Mama Morton, whatever shot, it's a, it's a two-piece suit, mm -hmm. sometimes mostly double-breasted, with a little bustier showing. That has sort of stayed. Velma has a little slip she opens with, a dress, and then a jacket. Roxy is the biggest variation. And I've got about six or eight, depending on how you vary, six or eight variations. Different necklines, different backlines, different sleeve lengths, different lengths, and uh, they're all out of the same lace. I had, I bought yardage, yards and yards, and then Several years in, we had in Lille, our laces made in Lille, actually in the, those old um, looms, and we order 500 yards at a time. So every Roxy dress is out of the same lace, but interpreted to suit that lady. And sometimes it's big, wide necklaces, sometimes it's a boat neck, and sometimes it's up to the, there's a, there's a turtleneck. I would think age plays a, a, a factor in some Not of that. Not necessarily. Okay. It's amazing what you can do with under underpinnings. Because I do have some underpinnings under those, the lace dresses. It's not just nothing. <laughs> like, not just Anita. <laughs> All the tricks. How long does 500 yards of lace last? That's a lot. Of, that's a lot. That's a lot. Well, it could last. Well, remember, we have different productions. Right. So you have... We're now entering... We're in our mid-50s of wow. the number of productions. We just sent off... Now we have a super stock of clothing that we send out to say, from measurements, and we assign them. What they do when they, another country wants to do Chicago, they, I ask them to send us everyone in bathing suits because um. you need to know... Everything. The whole thing. The men are in speedos. They can have yeah. their in speedos, and the women are in two piece or one piece, whichever. But it shows me what I need to know because those are see through. It's for their benefit. One guy in a Swedish production recently sent a picture with a big baggy T-shirt, and 
we were like going ahead and assigning someone, because I have baggy t-shirt looks, too, that could help with the middle. I just look at myself and think, what, what would I wear in Chicago? <laughs> and I have that available, readily available, with a big cummerbund to suck in the rest. I was assigning that one to this guy, and I said to my assistant, can we call up and email him and have another thing? Well... They sent back someone with an eight-pack. And I thought, well, I'm awfully glad I asked because, oh, I see, now we'll give a vest. (laughs) This is the coffee table book I want, which is all of these photographs of all of the Chicago dancers in bathing suits over the history of the 20 years of the show. They're fierce. They're fierce. I can imagine. And I don't ask for Billy Flynn or for Roxy or Velma or for Mama Morton because... We have a range, Mama Morton, we have a range, right. Billy Flynn wears a tuxedo, Amos also we don't ask for, and Velma and Roxy, we will tailor one of our classic looks mm-hmm. to them. To, to them. They're gonna wait outside in line to get to see Roxy. Think of those autographs, I'll sign good luck to you, Roxy. And I'll appear in a lavalier that goes all the way down to my waist. Here a ring, there a ring, everywhere a ring a ring. But always in the best of taste. Ooh, I'm a star. And the audience loves her. And I love the audience, and the audience loves me for loving them, and I love the audience for loving me, and we just love each other. That's because none of us ever got enough love in our childhood. That's right. And that showbiz kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would think because the, the, the people that come into Chicago are a wide range. You get Broadway veterans. You get people from television and film. I would imagine that you've had an experience with a Roxy or a Velma who may not come from a Broadway background who has very specific ideas about what they want to look like that have nothing to do with the show. You have just said what my the be, in the fewest words what I would have just said 15 minutes on. Thank you for that. That is exactly right. Part of the magic of the revolving door of Barry Weiserland is that you can have many people. For instance, Roxy's dancing is not Velma's dancing. Right. Velma has to be able to do some amazing... The thing on the chair. Exactly. Right. Few people can do that. Very right. few people can do it. <laughs> then I thought I'd cry. Buckets! Only I don't have a handkerchief, and that's when I have to ask you for yours. I really like that part, don't you? Then I get up, and I try to walk. Oh, but I'm too weak. So I slump, and I slump, and I slump, and I slump, until finally, I faint. When she rolls her eyes, watch her take the prize when Bella takes the Rob and I just saw Chicago last week. And oh, you did? We oh, did. Right. And I, I hadn't been in, I think, 16 years. Oh, it, my goodness, it had been yes. a while. Last time, last I go time, every year. He, Rob goes every <laughs> year. Last time I went, Melanie Griffith was Roxy. So oh, that, wasn't that she t- great? She, she made me cry. It was, it was a real... So good. It was a really special performance. But m- my point is, sitting there last week in the theater and seeing those costumes... It's a marvelous to me that they don't look any different than my memory of them. Although oh, they hearing, are different. Yeah. Hearing you describe them, yeah. they are very different, right? They and do they're, change. They're yeah. individualized for each other. Well, performer. and different fabrics are no longer available. Well, oh. So the cut of different pants have to be different. So right. yeah, but you, but I'm glad. So you're seeing a classic Chicago when you see it. Absolutely. I I That's really great. did not know what you just said about the dif- the difference the, mm-hmm. the differences between the fabrics and the time and all of that. It makes sense obviously cuz 23 years is a long time. It is. But you've kept the integrity of what you did so many years ago. Well, ap- ap- to that point, our first national tour after we had been on Broadway, Charlotte Damboise was going to be Roxy mm-hmm. and take that out and different people. 
I remember three of the guys' name were Mark. Right. <laughs> anyway, there were three Marks, three marks. in it. Yeah. I think I saw Jasmine Guy in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, you may have. Now, hold on, hold on. So, Walter Bobby, always the creative artist, says, why don't we just continue imagining what these people should wear? So I continued imagining, and we did different looks. We sort of kept the Broxy and Velma and Mama Mort, and the principles the same, but I did variations. We open out of town, I forget where, it was some Masonic hall. (laughs) The audience was loud, there was no internet at the time, and we got criticisms and complaints, and the producers called up Walter and said, well, Walter was there, and this is not working, and I called up Broadway and got the doubles, and the doubles went on the next day, and they've been on ever since. We had, unbeknownst to ourselves, created a Chicago look, even for the ensemble, and we didn't know it. We didn't know people were paying that much attention. So Go to Hell Kitty looks like Go to Hell Kitty, Hunyak looks like Hunyak, Uh, the... the, um, the full body stocking with the uh, gypsy shawl, they wanted yeah. to see that. The Caitlin Carter look, which I call that, which is bra and vinyl bra and panties under a full uh, net body stocking. They wanted to see all that, and I had replaced them with different looks. And so they were back, and we learned our lesson. Oh, we didn't even know we had made yeah. a classic. Your designs for that show, as we've been talking about, they are, I mean... Those designs are part of the culture now, right? So when you talk about a Fosse look, yeah. that's the look that comes to mind with people now, are your designs Isn't for that, that Chicago. Isn't that amazing? How for humbling that, that is. There's another example. Now, my mother, in her, from her grave, will say, stop bragging, because I was encouraged not to brag, but of course, did it work? No. <laughs> There's another that I'm told, because of course I'm bragging, full disclosure, I know I'm a disgusting and horrible person. But speaking of the people, the Candor and Ebb canon, there's another show called Cabaret. Yes. And another show star also starring in the original cast, Joel Gray. Mm-hmm. But I am told there is now a second look for the MC. So when people go out on Halloween, they right. have two choices <laughs> for the MC, and I'm awfully proud to be part of that. Yeah. Absolutely, bragging, bragging, yeah. bragging. Yeah. So, but both Joel Gray, I mean Cabaret and and uh, Chicago, Joel Gray, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Yeah. Should have been my name, Mister Cellophane, because you can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know I'm there, I tell ya, cellophane, Mr. Cellophane, should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane, cause you can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know I'm there. Even no I'm there Hope I didn't take up too much of your time. Another costume designer who uh, popped up when we were preparing uh, for this interview was Willa Kim. Oh, my great hero. Oh, right. my goodness. Right. I was wondering if you could share with us how oh, she my goodness. inspired my great. you. Now, yeah. Willa wasn't just my hero. She was my dear friend. Mm. And um, we became friends in the 70s. Well, we became friends in the 80s. We met in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And she was my most frequent uh, Tony-goer and theater-goer. And we've seen, you know, I would say almost, I mean, hundreds of shows and events together. So Willa is, remains, and she will remain forever, as one of the great theater artists. She had a, an almost intuitive, based on great study and knowledge, but it's amazing what people call intuitive when really it's based on a lot of work. But I'm going to still say intuitive. 
because she was so she gave an an impression of 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 an ephemeral spirit that would come upon people, places, and things, and have opinions, and tuck them into her brain. She was very poetic. Mm. And then, but hard as nails, and a workaholic. So, but what came out of this seemingly intuitive hard work is some of the most savvy, knowing dance costumes you will ever see, ever, in the world. And we all, everyone within earshot who is old enough to have seen, for instance, Dancing, mm-hmm. and how she interpreted previously existing productions of other shows that were then excerpted in this one night only dance. Well, it ran for years, but <laughs> it's to have been a celebration of, of Bob Fosse. She reimagined them without context of storytelling and mm-hmm. who, who, what, when, where, and why. No one will ever, ever forget the Sing, 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 right. our uh, steam heat. It's, it's just, it, you can't understand. Where did those pom-poms come from, Willa? Are those the ones that glowed, the things that glowed in the dark, those stripes? All of those, too. Oh. Where did the bouncy <laughs> things come from, Willa? Right. Where did the... And I, I will never forget it. And I had just begun to know her then, just a little bit. And I was in the shop one day, and she had a bowl. She was sitting there, and she had a bowl of water and a white, I guess it was poster board back then. We didn't have push pin board. We didn't have a lot of things back then, so I don't know what it was. But now it would be push pin board. Right. And she had this pot. The shoppers had brought different pink fabrics, little swatches or big swatches or whatever. They weren't uniform. And there she was dipping them in the water halfway and laying them on this white poster board. Dipping it like a like this size. What is this? This is a um, index card. Mm-hmm. Three by five. She three would, by five. Uh, three yeah. by five. She would dip, like I've done, written, she would dip this <laughs> into the water like I've just tipped it into my Tito's vodka. See, drying the, and she would place it over there. And she did this all together for an entire board through to see the wet and the dry. She was picking the pink shirts for one of the big dance numbers that men were wearing the pink shirts, ties, and trousers, and she wanted to see what the sweat did to it. Oh my God. Just think of the revelation. Mm. Because I have just dipped this piece, this card <laughs> in vodka and laid it on the thing. And you can still see there's a difference right. in these. Grayer on this side. Mm-hmm. And she did this with like a dozen or two. I didn't stay around to see which one she picked. Right. But that's how she picked the pink for the shirts. Wow. That's fascinating. Doesn't that, that give you goosebumps? Uh, yeah, it really That's does. a level of professionalism. <laughs> To which I aspire, <laughs> and I hope everybody who's listening yeah, also yeah, aspires, yeah. because that's dealing with what it's going right. to be. You've designed so many iconic costumes. We've talked about this um, at length. Is there a costume or a show that you wish you had designed that you didn't design? There is actually an answer to that. <laughs> I am pea green with jealousy over many shows that I wish I had designed. Um, because they're just so delicious and they have such wonderful people in them and damn, why wasn't I asked? So the list is so long, I don't really want to embarrass myself, (laughs) but I will tell you that the current production of Moulin Rouge designed by my colleague Catherine Zuber, I'm just pea green with envy. <laughs> well, that's quite a compliment for you to be green with envy. That's, I'm that, green with envy. That, that says it all. Well, it had its, 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 its colonel, Baz Luhrmann, right. and the great Catherine Martin, CM, who designed the scenery and costumes. Speaking of auteurs. Speaking yeah. of. <laughs> that family. Can you imagine that kitchen table? Right. <laughs> and actually, no, I can't imagine no, either of them in the kitchen. But anyway, that's a potency mm. to rival the recent Fosse Verdon that we all were thrilled with Tommy Kale's 
uh, steering of that of that ship. Yeah. And so, of course, I would love to have been part of this <laughs> that production. I'm very envious and very proud of them all, Derek McLean and Catherine Zuber. It's, it's quite a show. Well, finally, um, yes. we ask everyone this question, so we will ask you, what was the show or program or thing that made you want to work in the theater? Ah, I actually have an answer. I don't think I've said it out loud, but I've said it to the lady who designed it. I was in Chapel Hill and a PBS, Channel 13 or whatever it was down in North Carolina... PBS program was shown black and white and it was the um, the Rossignol and it was a Michael Schmuin choreographed ballet of the Rossignol and it had been reset for television film so there's a parade of the presentation of the Rossignol the little mechanical bird to the emperor and then there's the various ballets and various things that happen around this this presentation and I remember of course eating up anything from the new channel 13 now mind you black and white and it's the court of the emperor of China it's black and white (laughs) but it was shot on a white soundstage And the first things you saw were the banners carried by people in, um, you know, homage, fake Chinese, homage to chinoiserie, shall we just say, because it's westernized, chinoiserie garb, presenting this timeless story of the Rossignol, which is heartbreaking in many ways, but... I wasn't, my heart wasn't broken because of the story. My heart was broken because of the beauty. And it was years and years. And then, then it exploded to the scenery and costumes on this white soundstage. In other words, the ballet audience didn't see it. It was reconfigured for this theater in America, one of those early. And my heart exploded because even in black and white, the textures of velvet versus satin versus flat versus metallic, either gold or silver, and the complicated cloud motifs and the see-through butterflies that were carried and lit and the parade and... Designed by Willa Kim. Years later... I told her about it and I started crying the way I'm feeling very emotional right now. And she didn't know what to do because she was a crusty person. She was going <laughs> to, you know, this is not a... She, she wouldn't tear right up. I was tearing up in her living room because I think she asked me some version of that. How did you first know about me? Not your question, which is much even bigger. What made you want to do this? And my answer is the Verusignol, PBS, Michael Smuin, and you. She did the scenery, the props, and the costumes. Wow. In black and white. But I think there's also a portion of our audience that don't understand what black and white television looked like truly and, and how magical that must have been for it to take a hold of you as strongly as it did in black and white in black and white it's a right. testament it was, to the design it, it was absolutely it was the design well you know there are two two sides of design through the ages disegno e colore disegno means line colore means color in the 19th century design was epitomized by angra and line and colore uh, delacroix known for the passion of the cup. So it's also, Disegno is Apollonian, Colore is Dionysian, Apollo, Dionysus. These are the two sides. This, I would almost say, since we're talking about Rosignol, this is the yin and the yang. This is the two parts of all design. All choices have both. And uh, the best choices have both. (laughs) So I think I was seeing both in black and white. I did not know it was Willa until years later. Uh, seriously, I didn't know it was Willa Kim. 
and the and the profound effect that she would have on your entire and then, adult life. Mind, yeah, entire life, entire life. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were so close for decades. This is, I mean. Tony Wild, we say rather, funnily, um, I forget who said that. It wasn't Tony Wild, but it was somebody who said she, and she lived to be either 99, 99. or 101. Yeah, it was 99. <laughs> or 101. <laughs> God love her. God love her. Well, William, this was a real treat. Thank you so much for joining well, us tonight. thank you for letting me thank talk you. about myself and my mother would be so ashamed because <laughs> I'm afraid I've been bragging and and uh, name dropping and doing all the things that a nice southern boy is not supposed to do. Well, we are the benefit of yeah. your well, bragging thank you. and your name dropping. I hope it's not too terrible. No, thank you so much. Thank well, thank you. you. Now I can finish my martini. Yes. Rob here with You May Be Wondering. During our conversation with William just now, we mentioned Willa Kim. You may be wondering who she was and how her legacy continues to this day. A legendary costume designer for ballet, theater, opera, and television, Willa Kim was born on June 30th, 1917, the daughter of Korean immigrants who operated a grocery store. Showing an early affinity for art, Willa set out to become a fashion illustrator and painter, studying her craft at Los Angeles City College and the California Institute of the Arts. In the 1940s, she briefly worked as a fashion illustrator at Macy's before moving to Paramount Studios to become an assistant to costume designer Raoul Penet Dubois, who would become her mentor and collaborator. She followed Raoul to New York to work behind the scenes on costumes on the original productions of Call Me Madam, Wonderful Town, Gypsy, The Music Man, and Bells Are Ringing, and even married his cousin, William. In the 1960s, Willa broke out on her own, enduring a string of flops on Broadway before hitting her stride with hit shows in the late 1970s through the 1990s, including Bob Fosse's Dancing in 1978, Song and Dance in 1985, and of course, her Tony Award-winning designs for Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Ladies in 1981 and the Will Rogers Follies in 1991. Known for designing and crafting exuberant, fanciful, and over-the-top costumes that dazzled the eye and were central to creating theatrical spectacle, Willa was also a noted innovator, particularly in the world of dance, where she was strongly associated with Elliot Feld's ABT, the American Ballet Theater. She is credited with being the first costume designer to switch from heavy woolen nylon to lightweight stretch fabrics for dancers' costumes, and she was the first to hand-paint designs on those new fabrics. Willa entered the Theater Hall of Fame in 2007, before passing away in 2016 at the age of 99, following a long and full life defined by elegance of design and a dogged work ethic. If you're ever wondering if it's worth it to continue pursuing a dream or a goal, just remember that Willa Kim was in her 60s before she won her first Tony Award. As a way to honor her life's work as a pioneer, legend, and inspiration for many of today's theater artists, the Theater Communications Group, with support from the estate of Willa Kim, recently announced the inaugural recipients of the Willa Kim Costume Design Scholarship. This unique scholarship provides exceptionally talented costume designers who are enrolled in a university or a professional training program with up to $7,500 to be used towards tuition, registration, and or supplies specifically earmarked for training in hand drawing and painting beyond the regular academic curriculum. As drafting software and other digital tools become increasingly advanced and ubiquitous, the goal of this scholarship's focus is to ensure that early career costume designers develop their skills in the arts of drafting and drawing by hand, something Willa was passionate about. Next time you see a show, any show, whether on Broadway or in your community, remember that someone designed, constructed, and or assembled the costumes that hours and hours of hard work and countless artistic decisions went into crafting the final products you see on stage, and that there is a long, proud tradition of costume design, extending from pioneers like Willa Kim to today's industry leaders like William Ivy Long and -and up-and-coming generations of designers who have yet to make their names. Together, these costume designers play a significant role in keeping the heart of the fabulous invalid beating for artists and audiences alike. Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. And special thanks, as always, to Orso Restaurant for hosting us. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.